welcome to this live podcast of the Wright City Conference, taking place here at the University of Concordia in Montreal. This event is hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, Canada's leading research institute and think tank for the prevention of mass atrocities, in partnership with Amnesty International and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. I'm Duncan Cooper. And I'm Alexandrine Royer. This is the third edition of the Wright City Conference, an initiative established in order to bring together inspiring thought leaders who will provide valuable insights regarding pressing human rights issues. Our aim is to provide Canada and the international human rights community with a constructive platform during this time of great upheaval. In this series, we'll be joined by leading human rights voices who will share their perspectives on some of today's challenges in the preservation and protection of human rights. In recent years, political observers have raised the alarm, warning of the steady erosion of democratic principles worldwide. As globalization brings us closer together, we in the human rights community are faced with increasingly complex challenges. The primacy of a human rights-led international framework as a refrain of global politics is being confronted by a new set of actors that reject basic freedoms. Authoritarian regimes are using new technologies to expand their repressive state apparatuses and reassert their hold in domestic affairs. Populist politics are threatening to reverse some of the hard-won accomplishments of the human rights movement. The challenge on how to resist and confront these assaults on human rights continues to gain increasing urgency. In the wake of the international community's deteriorating consensus, Canada, and notably the city of Montreal, have continued to steadily position themselves as human rights leaders. Today, we'll be hearing from a range of human rights activists to share their insights on what some have labeled the end of human rights. Rather than a discourse of surrender and abjection, we are hoping our speakers will inspire calls to action and renew commitments to the human rights movement. Thank you for listening. Freedom of expression is a cornerstone of a free and just society. The persecution and vilification of journalists by populist and authoritarian actors has been a worrying trend across the globe for years now, showing few signs of abating. One needs to only look at Jamal Khashoggi's gruesome murder to see the alarming need for a more robust international response to actors like Saudi Arabia, whose impunity in the face of serious human rights violation underscores the need for decisive action. In this climate of fear, how can we encourage journalists and human rights activists to continue to break the silence and speak out on human rights issues? Our guest today is Basma Mumani, who is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo and a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. On the day of the conference, we unfortunately ran out of time to interview Professor Mamani in person. We, along with MAKE's project coordinator, Marie Lamench, had the chance to conduct a telephone interview with Professor Mamani two days after Wright City. Here is the recording of our conversation. Hi, Pesma. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I have uh, Alexandrine with me here, and uh, she's going to ask most of the questions. Hello, Professor Mamani. Thank you for joining us. Our first question relates to Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, silencing a political dissident. So leaks regarding the imprisonment, torture, and sentencing of human rights activists have revealed the true nature of the MBS regime. Despite this, there still seems to be continued resistance on the ground on the part of Saudi human rights campaigners. So 
So would you agree that there is still active resistance in Saudi Arabia? If so, what are some of the consequences of speaking up? So I think there is continued effort by uh, Saudi activists to overall resist uh, not just the, I think, stifling of uh, political views and dissent and certainly uh, civil society work. Uh, And it's evidenced by the fact that there is increasingly in the past couple of years uh, a roundup of activists who are imprisoned. And I dare say even farther than that, unfortunately, it includes the collective punishment of people who are family members of those activists, uh, perhaps even you know, former activists to signal to the wider Saudi public that this is not tolerated. So it is in line with a broader, you know, climate of trying to stifle any type of political activism throughout the country. And it is unfortunately, I think, a bigger part of the way that uh, this particular government, led by Mohammed bin Salman, de facto term, tries to really consolidate his power so that all reforms and so-called, uh, you know, gains in society are deemed to be given by the regime and not necessarily fought by a bottom-up process. So it's in essence, trying to really affirm this point that all reforms shall be top down and given by Palak bin Salman individually or personally, rather than it be the consequence or the result of struggle through a bottom-up civil society process. And so for journalists in particular, advocates play a role of advocacy on the behalf of civil society. With the case of Jamal Khashoggi being probably one of the most highlighted, do you really see that there's been an impact to stifle free press in Saudi Arabia? There has definitely been a stifling of free press in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, you know, Saudi Arabia has not had a very liberal uh, environment for the media generally, but it is also a place that is hyper-connected. In fact, it is a country that has the highest users of Twitter per capita, mm-hmm. highest uh, uploads of videos onto YouTube, and although many of that uh, you know, content is not necessarily of a political nature, some of it is just social commentary, nevertheless it just, it just points out that Saudi Arabia and I would say particularly its youth are very much hyper-connected. They are uh, keen on expressing themselves mm-hmm. in one way or another, and uh, the regime wants to ensure that uh, nobody expresses themselves in a manner that is politically contentious to the dominant narrative given by the regime. Mm-hmm. And do you think this high Twitter presence is perhaps one of the factors that led to such an intense backlash earlier in August to Chris, uh, Minister Christia Freeland's tweet when, when she was demanding the immediate release of women's rights activists. The tweet was also uh, released in Arabic. So do you think the high media presence in Saudi Arabia sort of contributed to that? Somewhat. Uh, you know, I think it's more about it being Canada actually uh, probably uh, irked the regime. In that sense, you know, there's nothing new about what, frankly, uh, Christopher Freeland or the embassy in Saudi Arabia had mm-hmm. said. In fact, some of the wording and language was straight from a U.S. State Department yeah. uh, advisory. So I don't think it's, you know, fair to say it's something about the words or the content or it being mm-hmm. in Arabic. I mean, there's no shortage of uh, material put out by many Western governments that literally 
you know, cut and paste the same kinds of language. At the end of the day, it was from a UN document as mm. well, the UN uh, Human Rights Council that uh, brought this to the fore. But I think what uh, Canada represents uh, most importantly is that it is a relatively in the big scheme of things uh, a place that we that they could make uh, an example of uh, mm-hmm. it was a signal to the world that yeah. we are willing to go to the extreme to cut ties and to hurt uh, countries and and, and and companies in pursuit of ensuring that people don't criticize Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and where I think the Saudis can't afford to do that quite literally with the United States uh, France, the UK, even Germany, because the contracts are just too valuable mm-hmm. for particularly the Saudis. I think in the case of Canada, mm-hmm. you know, our bilateral economic trade, our you know bilateral diplomatic uh, you know relationship is relatively insignificant in the big scheme of things, both mm-hmm. for us and for them. And so I think it was a way to make an example out of us, and yeah. it wasn't really about the content of the messaging per se. Mm -hmm. That said, there's also the fact that Canada really has, under the Trudeau government, put a lot of, I think, symbolism into Mm -hmm. its stated uh, support for human rights. And so that allowed, I think, to make it even more significant internationally. It allowed the message that the Saudis want to create to be more impactful because it's not just any country, it's Canada, which has, of course, in the eyes of many populists and certainly amongst a lot of uh, autocratic regimes, um, seen this country as perhaps uh, taking too much of a high road um, and this moral high ground Mm -hmm. in its so-called effort to promote both a feminist foreign policy and, of course, a human-centric run. So I think it allowed the Saudis to uh, make a case out of us. And mm-hmm. again, it's nothing to do with the content of what was tweeted or, or the fact that Saudi Arabia is hyper-connected. It has more to do with the fact that Canada is insignificant enough that it doesn't hurt the Saudis to make an example out of us. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And you were recently quoted in an article by the CBC on imprisoned Saudi activists stating that I think the Canadians frankly don't see much of a prospect of changing the regime's behavior or really taking on a big hit both politically and diplomatically from being the sole voice of criticizing the Saudis. So how do Canada, how do you think Western governments or perhaps Canada in particular who does not have as big of trade agreements with the Saudi regime should react to abuses in the country beyond publicly naming and shaming? Are economic sanctions really the most effective route or the best route to take? Well, it's more like how do you think Canada and Western countries should approach not only our relationship, you know, with Saudi Arabia, but how uh, how it treats journalists in general. Do we have any chance of, like, you know, having having any impact as well, considering um, considering our economic relationship with Saudi Arabia? Okay, so I think you know, in terms of what Canadian foreign policy tools are available to us to, um, you know, make. Uh, our voice heard. You know, the, ra- the, the reality is, and perhaps it's a realist perspective, um, there isn't a lot that we have in terms of, you know, making this hurt uh, for the Saudis. Uh, certainly, I think we are probably um, 
at least when it comes to the biggest item in terms of the arms trade, uh, if there is a suspension of that, uh, one could point out that economically or financially that would hurt Canada. That's not to take away from the uh, moral argument that maybe we should, but in essence, in terms of costs and tools, that's the one thing that we have. Um, In terms of what can we do to, um, I think, try and change course, I think standing our ground uh, on being keen, uh, being key advocates for human rights uh, and a feminist foreign policy at a time when, frankly, very few people are willing to do it is important. We certainly already paid the costs that Mm -hmm. may have been already incurred by uh, the fact that uh, the Saudis have, you know, pulled out the students, um, had, of course, also suspended future economic uh, deals and and trade deals, or not trade deals, sorry, um, uh, agreements with companies, all that bilateral economic stuff has already been absorbed as a cost. So I think there's very little for us to lose at this point, and so why not uh, stick to our guns at this point? I don't think that there is any hope of recourse in getting our bilateral relationship back on track unless there is quite uh, literally a change of government here in Canada. So I think it's advisable for Freeland and the Trudeau government to to stick to it because there's really very little loss and, and more uptake. But one has to be also... I think realistic about whether or not we, um, through our, um, you know, media pressure and vocal um, objection to Saudi policies, that we're going to really make a dent in the change of behavior of the Saudis. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can really expect that. Uh, ironically, it is um, probably going to help the Saudis consolidate power and rally those who see Canada as being perhaps too. Uh, you know, more you know, normatively centered or more more normatively centric in its views. Um, that it, it probably makes the Saudis dig their heels even further. But again, I just think that the bilateral relationship is at a complete impasse, and nothing's going to change unless there's a change in our government. Certainly, we know the Hamid bin Salman. You know, regime is going to reign for perhaps another 50 years because he's so young. So, you know, we might as well not give up. Uh, we've nothing to lose and only perhaps moderate gain. Thank you for those answers. Our next question relates more to the press and media specifically. There seems to be a retreat from the U.S. in supporting um, freedom of expression, journalistic freedom worldwide. When uh, Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated, the U.S. did very little to intervene. Do you think there is hope for journalistic reporters in Saudi Arabia? Do you think Canada sticking to its gun and lending its support will be effective in a certain way? Or do you think this has had an impact more generally in the Middle East as a whole? And it is the case of Jamal Khashoggi, has it effectively discouraged or rather, in a certain way, encouraged political dissenters to express themselves in perhaps not Saudi Arabia, but other countries within the region? I definitely think that... um the murder of Khashoggi has put a chill in the air, and I think it has discouraged um, Saudis to be public and to take to uh, perhaps uh, some aspects of social media. That's not to say that it hasn't, in fact, created more activism. I think it has, uh, but I think people are going to be more careful about expressing themselves. So it hasn't discouraged political dissenters. I just think it has probably made them go underground, be more careful, uh, certainly more coded. Um, And what I would argue, you know, and I 
think that um, the work of Asif Bayat here and his argument of everyday protest is mm-hmm. probably where we should get some intellectual um, fervor for this, which is people are going to be expressing themselves in everyday protests yeah. and everyday actions. Uh, they're not going to be willing to, frankly, stand in the middle of a square and scream at the top of their lungs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they would, in private, have these kinds of conversations and probably are about the um, intrusion into free thinking, um, the overextension of Palestinian land's reach. Um, we might even see, I think, uh, more kinds of protests in family debates. Um, but again, I think it's going to be far more private, less public, and certainly mm-hmm. I don't think it will take form in social media in people expressing themselves, but they may in fact be listening more. And that's going to be hard to identify. So. Uh, what I mean by that is I think you are going to probably see, see more Saudi politi- politically um, attuned to the debates, uh, probably even following more dissenters to hear what they're saying, but probably not willing to be active uh, dissenters or active on social media in expressing their view. Besma, as a journalist and knowing that you know a lot of journalists around the world and here in Canada, do you feel, do you get threats from the Saudi government sometimes or from uh, from activists here in Canada? You know, because we know China does that uh, here in Canada. Do you feel, do you see the same with um, Saudi Arabia? I personally haven't, and I think that's partly because I'm not a Saudi citizen, mm-hmm. but I have no doubt that uh, Saudi citizens do feel threatened uh, when they're in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe... That is, you know, unsubstantiated, uh, but certainly from my reading of people who are on the spectrum of being uh, opponents to the regime, um, whether, you know, just in their tweets and their commentary, there is a a fear, there is a sense of fear, um, and whether or not they um, have been actually threatened by the regime, um, some have alluded to that online, I've seen it. Um, but I would also point out that I think the Saudis are probably going to be far more cautious now because of uh, how public uh, the Khashoggi murder and luring of him into uh, the consulate was. Mm-hmm. What do you think of, you know, we in Canada we have welcomed one, a few Saudi uh, women who uh, were trapped basically in Saudi Arabia or in the region and were trying to escape the country. You know, and they use social media to try and um, escape Saudi Arabia. What do you think of that kind of, of those uh, strategies? So, are you asking me if these women's activists are using social media? Yeah, yeah. How they? How, how do you think? Do you think that's a good thing for them to use this, or do you see a danger for other other activists in the future to use the same strategy? Specifically, the women who try to escape, or do yeah. you mean just generally? Yeah, the women who try to escape. Oh, okay. So, look, there is a, um, you know, I think an underground movement um, to help uh, Saudi women uh, leave the country. That's not, um, it's not a secret. Uh, there's been plenty of media reports that show there's a entire network that's helping, um, giving advice, uh, both quasi-legal advice on how to do it, but also... Um, how to sort of strategize their public relations uh, and social media to um, get as much international attention to their cause. And of course, we know based on the human rights, um, the um, uh, Amnesty International, that the number of Saudi individuals and women in particular who have tried to leave 
has been on the rise. I think that that probably also undercounts the fact that there are probably many Saudi activists and women who are going to be in self-imposed exile, that are outside the country, are not going to try to seek asylum, but basically evade um, their, their whether it's a tourist visa or a, um, a student visa in a Western country. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this. It's going to be a trend, um, and I think that is um, going to create more demand for information uh, online um, by activists on how to evade return to Saudi Arabia. Okay. You ha- wanted to ask a few questions about what was going on. In in Sudan, because mm-hmm. um, I know you're doing, uh, you're commenting on it and writing a little bit about it. Because I'm I'm doing a, I've been focusing on Sudan and South Sudan for quite a few years now, and I'm interested in basically what do you think Saudi Arabia and the United States, uh, United Emirates Arabs uh, have been the UAE have been trying to you know support the military who are still in place, including by giving money. Do you think they'll be successful? Because the situation is clearly turning violent now in Sudan. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how we define success. Um, but, you know, I think that the Gulf countries that are supporting the military want to see the, the sit-ins and they want to see the you know, international attention on Sudan and and I think also preserve the essence of the military structure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, Sudanese mercenaries are brought in in the war in Yemen uh, to fight on behalf of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and to lesser extent, uh, a lot of uh, Saudi and UAE investment go into owning land in Saudi Arabia, specifically for food and agriculture production, as both those countries are, uh, you know, poor, they have poor arable land, so they need, and are food import dependent, so they need uh, access to these kinds of agreements. But um, as to whether or not they'll succeed, unfortunately, I think the international environment Mm -hmm. has given them a ability to do uh, what they want. We have seen, in my humble opinion, although uh, people think that, yeah, there's a tension, I think, under the circumstances, there's very little... Uh, enough, there's not enough attention to what's happening in Sudan. And it could get far violent. I think the past two days has shown that for those who have been following. Mm -hmm. There has been an enormous uptick in um, uh, just horrendous violence. And the the actor on the ground that is um, really committing much of this is the John Jowit, basically, who are the perpetrators behind the Darfur massacre. So they're bloodthirsty, they're well-trained on how to do this. The internet has been pretty much shut down. Um, foreign journalists are not allowed to leave their hotels in many cases, and so they've, you know, tried to prevent the uh, outpouring of uh, video feeds and, and citizen journalists and evidence that may come out on what is, I think, probably um, a, a, a attempt to slaughter um, mm-hmm. all of those activists who were outside the army headquarters fighting for democracy. Yeah, one, I mean, the current so-called vice president is somebody called Hamedi, who was uh, in charge of a lot of the violence in Darfur and managed to stay around uh, uh, Bashir uh, even after things calmed down uh, a little bit in Darfur. Um, Why do you think Western countries are not paying 
uh, attention at all, considering, I mean, it's for, to me, it's particularly shocking considering how much uh, the U.S., including the CIA, has been collaborating with Bashir in the, over the past few years in Europe, uh, over, in Europe as well over um, immigration and uh, counterterrorism. Well, I mean, you know, I think um, there's a, a multitude of reasons. Uh, a certain part of it is Arab Spring fatigue, uh, both in the media and the West. Um, it's really hard to point to a lot of successes other than, say, Tunisia, uh, and even that is still tumultuous. And so it's really hard to kind of be optimistic about where this goes. And so there is a fatigue among many people. I think, unfortunately, it's uh, got an overall lack of, uh, I mean, there's a, just an overall media bias uh, toward covering events in Africa, whether it's uh, coded with um, overall racism, it has to be said, it can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. But I think a part of it also is, you know, we see things in Africa and we just hear words militias and, you know, it sounds like an internal dynamic rather than us being self-critical about what our uh, role is in all this. Um, and it seems like it's just a regional conflict with tribes and ethnic communities and, you know, let's not get involved. And certainly I think the way we have, uh, you know, looked away uh, when we should have been focused on things, whether it's Rwanda and other places. But I think it has to do with our overall lack of uh, empathy to yeah. what happened in many other parts of the world. Um, you know, I can't help but, with all due respect to, um, obviously, our own history here, not to be rude, but in the past three days, I have had to hear countless hours of coverage about D-Day. Mm -hmm. And it is shocking that um, we could spend a good 20 minutes on D-Day with foreign correspondents going there in droves to cover a lot of pomp and ceremony mm -hmm. that is, you know, not to be disrespectful, but it's, of course, very important. But yet the very principles that we apparently yep. went to fight against, mm -hmm. um, which include, you know, not seeing the rise of authoritarianism and autocrats is happening right around the world and we just don't seem to put the same effort um, especially since the the Sudanese civilians they, they're fighting for the very same principles that um, a lot of Canadian soldiers went to fight for during World War II you know democracy and freedom of speech and all those things that yeah. they were denied for like more than 30 years yeah and you know again it's to me again appalling that there was far more coverage of you know what Melania Trump wore yeah. to the um, to the opening of whatever the the, the meeting mm -hmm. that uh, they had with the monarchy, mm -hmm. which was just you know exorbitant and unnecessary, and we ignore the fact that there is a human right catastrophe going on not just in Sudan but you know in China and um, and and Myanmar. I mean it, the list goes on mm -hmm. and on, um, and and part of that is. You know, we we seem to unfortunately have this very narrow ban bandwidth in our in our um, in our media space, and mm -hmm. we tend to want to to cover things that we see only as directly affecting us. And so, because we had a presence at Normandy, because we have a connection to the Queen, we will spend an enormous amount of time talking about things that I think are not worthy of holding on to 20 minutes of our of our news hour but the fact that there are people being 
you know, chopped and thrown into the Nile River just doesn't seem to make a dent. And our news story is appalling. And it says a lot about where our priorities are, frankly. Yeah, we agree. Mm-hmm. I think um, on our part, that was it for today. Thank you so much for... Thank you so much, Besma. For all your insights. Um, especially the last part was particularly interesting about our media biases um, and what we actually choose to cover. Um, so thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Besma. We hope you enjoyed this latest podcast, and we look forward to bringing you new content in the future. To stay up to date with what we have planned, please follow us on Twitter at Mix Institute. And look for our monthly newsletters on our website.